Celebrate Pride Month with TVO. Visit tvo.me slash pride for documentaries, kid shows, and educational resources. Discover inspiring stories of love, friendship, and resilience. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pagan. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, an historic deal on highways, housing, and finances between the province and its capital city. Ontario Liberals have voted, and now we wait for the results on December 2nd. An inside look at our gavel-to-gavel coverage of the convention. And in our weekly feature, Your Column, My Column, I'll be focusing on the significance today, Giving Tuesday, of women and philanthropy. And I'll be discussing matters of parliamentary privilege and the MPP for Hamilton Centre. It's Tuesday, November 28th, 2023, so let's get to it. JMM, how you doing? Uh, I'm well, Steve. How Good you to doing? See you again, pal. I'm a okay. Uh, you you, uh, you had a day in Kitchener last week, yes? I did indeed. Uh, borrowed the old TVO van, uh, drove to uh, the riding of Kitchener Center, uh, where there is a by-election on Thursday. Full disclosure: the reason I bothered to make the trip at all is because the Green Party uh, called me, or a representative of the Green Party called me and said, like, "Hey, you know." There's something happening here. You you want to check this out. And, you know, I had the time and I thought, eh, why not? And I got into the riding and it was surprising. Uh, there are signs for the Green Party's candidate, Ashlyn Clancy, who was also uh, a city councillor in Kitchener. Uh, there are signs everywhere. Uh, also, a lot of New Democrat signs, not so much the Liberals or the Tories. Uh, now, judging an election by the sign war is not like wise. <laughs> well, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. That's yeah, the problem. You never know. Exactly. Um, it's it's certainly not a hard and fast rule. Um, but even just as I say, just rolling into the riding, uh, you could see why the Greens are feeling very confident about their chance. Of course, this would be the second Green MPP after their leader, Mike Schreiner. Uh, in last year's general election, the Greens were uh, had a whole lot of hopes pinned on winning in Perry Sound, Muskoka with Matt Richter. They didn't end up closing the gap there, uh, but they are getting another chance. And of course, I don't have to tell you that a by-election is kind of a perfect time to elect a Green MPP because the balance of the legislature really is unaffected. Yes. And Guelph is not that far away, and that's the one seat they do hold with the leader, Mike Schreiner. And Kitchener Center has a federal Green MP, Mike Morris. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So, yeah, the stars may be aligning. We shall see. This is a former New Democrat seat, right? This is Laura May Lindo's seat. She stepped down. So... If the NDP were to lose this seat, that would be terrible for them, needless to say. It, it, it would not be great for the NDP. It would not be great for uh, Marit Stiles. Uh, the NDP candidate who I spoke with did acknowledge that some of the, the recent controversy about Sarah Jama has, uh, has shown up at the doorstep, but... She said that it has not been a, a major issue uh, in the campaign as far as she's concerned. All uh, three of the uh, the leading candidates who I was able to speak with, uh, A, uh, two city councillors and a municipal civil servant, uh, all three women. These are the uh, Green, New Democrat and Liberal candidates. Um, and uh, and they all agreed uh, the thing that they are hearing most at the doorstep is just affordability and housing costs. Interesting. Okay. So we will uh, wait for Thursday night for the by-election results to become known. And then I suppose we'll talk about it on next week's podcast. Absolutely. Great. Okay, on to issue one. Friends, after weeks of productive discussions, we've agreed to a game-changing historic new deal. 
Yesterday, Ontario Premier Doug Ford and Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow announced a new deal that will touch on a ton of issues. Here are some of the highlights in case you missed the announcement. The province will assume financial responsibility for two major highways, the Gardner Expressway and the Don Valley Parkway, and the Premier assured everyone there will never be tolls on those roads as long as he is in charge. The province will give annual operating money of $330 million over three years for the Eglinton Crosstown and the Finch West light rail transit lines. There's $600 million in additional operating support for shelters and homelessness. There's more than $750 million for 55 new subway trains for the TTC's Bloor Line. That's line two that goes east-west across the city. On the other side of the deal, Toronto has agreed to give up its opposition to the province's plans at Ontario Place. The Ontario Science Centre will, as the province wanted, move to the Terme Spa location down on the waterfront, but the original building in Midtown Toronto will remain in place for science programming. It is, as they say in politics, a BFD. And I will let you guess what the F stands for. It's a big deal. the F is something else in the middle there. I'm, I'm scandalized, Steve. <laughs> anyway, um, you saw the announcement. What would you think? You know, it's certainly a large amount of money that the province is throwing to the city of Toronto. Um, but it is also uh, a big political price to pay for allowing Therme to build its spa. Uh, that said, uh, Premier Ford did say, or he, he argued anyway, that the spa was a relatively small part of the deal. No, this is more than Ontario Place. Again, I'll repeat, this is more than Ontario Place. Ontario Place is that small. Uh, Premier Ford mentioned that he and Mayor Chow are uh, halfway happy about the deal. He said that the proposed parking lot at the spa location could be moved to Exhibition Place. Uh, That would save taxpayers uh, a bunch of money if it was uh, able to be built more uh, cheaply there. It could also end up being a a concession to the mayor, allowing for uh, the province to conserve more green space uh, around Ontario Place and possibly uh, keeping more uh, publicly accessible uh, area there as well. Premier said that he didn't really want to upload the Gardner and uh, DVP uh, because he remembered how much of a budgetary headache it caused for uh, him and his late brother, the mayor, uh, when they were on Toronto City Council. But that in doing so, you know, he can free up uh, a bunch of money in Toronto's capital budget that can be spent on uh, the province's housing goals. The money the city will receive in 2024 is not, we should say, uh, going to cover its uh, current deficit of uh, about one and a half billion dollars. So more is going to have to be done uh, to raise that money to close the gap. Um, But because of the money that is coming in, the city will not have to face some of the like truly apocalyptic tax increases that they were considering. Uh, Toronto, of course, like all municipalities uh, in Ontario, uh, has to balance its budget. But of course, that's different from the federal and provincial governments. Uh, municipalities cannot run operating deficits. Uh, so increases in property taxes are almost a surefire thing. Of course, the city of Toronto almost always increases property taxes anyway. The question is uh, how much they will increase this year. Uh, Chow is uh, already facing some criticism over this deal. Uh, she ran for election very staunchly opposed to the development of the Thermos Spa uh, down uh, at the site of Ontario Place, wanted to keep it a public park, and making this deal uh, has uh, disappointed some of her supporters. Here is what Chow said back in June. And I hope, Mr. Ford, while you're listening, you love the waterfront also. Uh, let's see if we could find a common ground, maybe move the spa to 
uh, another place because it, it is also a water park. Move it up to um, the exhibition, maybe, or other parts, uh, perhaps even in Topico. Uh, that was Olivia Chow back in June, urging Ontario Place be turned into a public park rather than a private spa. Uh, then in September, she proposed that the Thermae Spa uh, take over the Better Living Center at Exhibition Place. That is now off the table. Uh, as I say, you know, I saw a lot of disappointed people on social media who said, you know, they voted for Chow in part because of her pledge to fight the province on this file. So seeing her uh, effectively uh, surrender uh, has upset some people. Yeah, I'm sure they're disappointed, but the reality is politics is the art of the possible. And if Mayor Chow was going to get something that she really wanted, namely the uploading of the highways and all that extra money for housing, etc., she was going to have to give up on something. And it appears that this is the thing she's having to give up on. She's going to have to throw in the towel on that spa. Now, other municipalities must be looking at this deal and thinking to themselves, well, that's great for Toronto, but where's our slice of the pie? Uh, So question, does the province have to make similar infusions of cash to other cities that also see themselves struggling financially? Well, this is a huge question going forward. Um, Fundamentally, uh, no, there's nothing forcing the province uh, to uh, make uh, similar deals with other municipalities. life is unfair and (laughs) the government of Ontario can treat Toronto uh, distinctly if it wants to. Uh, That said, uh, there are plenty of municipalities around the province who are responsible for maintaining roads that were downloaded to their responsibility during the Mike Harris government and the common sense revolution years. If the government is going to treat other cities the way the premier is treating Toronto, uh, the, the total bill could end up being billions of dollars more than has already been announced. And if the government doesn't want to uh, treat municipalities uh, fairly, let's say, if the government doesn't want to, to make those billions of dollars available, it's going to open up a political line of attack for the opposition parties, at least, right? Is Toronto getting special treatment because the premier is a Toronto MPP? Well, that's one reason why Toronto might be getting special treatment. The other thing, and the premier pointed this out at his news conference yesterday, Toronto's different. Toronto is the capital city. Toronto is the only city with a subway. It's 50% of the province's economy. So while Olivia Chow may have paved the way for the province to build the spa... Groups such as Ontario Place for All have been seeking injunctions to stop the project. Uh, They're surely disappointed today, but do we think that their efforts are ultimately going to stand in the way of this spa going ahead and other developments on that land happening? So Ontario Place for All has been seeking an injunction to prevent development until a full environmental assessment is completed. Uh, the current assessment actually excludes the development of the Thermae Spa. There are environmental concerns given uh, just, I mean, the overarching climate crisis that the province faces. Um, then there are, you know, arguably smaller, more distinct issues like uh, how does uh, cutting down uh, hundreds of mature trees along the West Island, how will that affect uh, bird species? Uh, how much carbon will the spa generate if it's using natural gas to fire its boilers. Uh, A Thermae Spa in Manchester, for instance, in a three-month period, released 22,000 tons of carbon and used water equivalent to 6,000 homes. So these are real environmental impacts, and the group is asking for the federal government to step in and review the plan, perhaps hoping for something like what happened when the feds stepped in to stop development near the Rouge Valley in March this year. I will say, I think there are two things that uh, are 
let's say, headwinds uh, for uh, Ontario Place for All in this context. Uh, one is that provincially, uh, the uh, the legislation that the government has just introduced uh, on this matter does exempt Ontario Place from the Provincial Environmental Assessment Act. And the Supreme Court recently just substantially narrowed what the Federal Impact Assessment Act can apply to. I am not hugely optimistic, let me put it that way, uh, that a a federal environmental assessment would be allowed in uh, this kind of context. Not an impossibility, and I am not a lawyer, and you shouldn't take legal advice from journalists, (laughs) but I would say that there are are headwinds um, uh, facing uh, groups who are trying to stop the uh, Ontario Place Spa. That said, uh, Premier Ford has shown some flexibility in his plan. Uh, could Mayor Chow lobby for even more green space or stop the uh, destruction of the existing natural spaces there? You know, it's possible that Ford uh, gave an inch and Toronto could take a mile, uh, but it does look like, at minimum, this luxury spa, this event space, whatever it ends up being, it, it is going to get built because it is a provincial priority. I always, in considering this issue, separated two things here. One was the spa. And the other thing was the parking lot. Now, the spa, honorable people could disagree about the advisability of putting a spa on that land. And you have just very nicely laid out the two sides on this. The parking lot, though, was, um, well, uh, that was a bridge too far for a lot of people. The $500 million paid for with Ontario taxpayers' dollars for a private company underwater parking lot. Yes, (laughs) just seemed for the vast, vast majority of people who considered it uh, an egregious uh, expenditure of taxpayers' dollars and something that didn't make a lot of sense. So let's clarify right now, that's not on anymore, right? Well, we don't know for sure, but the province does seem uh, willing to discuss moving it. And of course, they should be willing to discuss moving it because if you just go on the north side of the Gardner, or sorry, I guess the north side of Lakeshore, um, you've got the CNE lands and there are uh, lots and lots of parking lots there and you could uh, build another parking structure if you need more spaces. Um, And indeed, that is what the city of Toronto is offering right now. And if uh, the province were to take that deal, I'm not a engineer of parking structures. I have to imagine it would be cheaper than building an underwater parking structure. You think so? Yeah, I think so. Um, Let me get this straight though. You're not a lawyer and you're not a parking engineer. But you're, you're weighing in on these issues uh, as if you were. Well, you know, uh, we're journalists, right? Today I am an expert in throws dart at board. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I hope and expect the province to give uh, this idea of moving the parking lot a, a very uh, serious hearing. Um, you know, it's, it's worth mentioning that they are giving themselves very, very broad powers to just ram this through. Um, King Asurma will now actually be given ministerial zoning powers. Uh, like the, the city is really losing any kind of leverage, any kind of procedural leverage it would have had to draw this out. It, this is going to get approved very, very quickly now. And, um, you know, uh, certainly I would expect the government very much wants uh, enough work to be uh, done before the next election that no government is going to consider stopping the project or trying to reverse it. Right. So a big historic announcement by the government of Ontario and the city of Toronto, but certainly not the end of the story. And we'll, of course, keep an eye on this for you. Okay, moving on to issue two. Over the weekend, 103,000 Ontario Liberal Party members were eligible to vote for the next leader. Those ballots are now under lock and key in downtown Toronto at Liberal Party headquarters. 
JMM, I think we need to update people on the state of things because some of the information we imparted last week was, shall we say, incomplete. So let us update our listeners on where things are at. Over to you. So as we uh, mentioned to our listeners last week, the Liberals are uh, using a points-based system. Each one of Ontario's 124 ridings will be worth 100 points for uh, the four candidates. So that's 12,400 points at stake uh, with the winner capturing 50% plus one. Except (laughs) uh, we had neglected to mention, I had forgotten, I won't uh, assume that uh, uh, you were as absent-minded as I was. I was. was. (laughs) Full disclosure, I was. Um, We neglected to mention that the Liberals are uh, offering an additional wrinkle to that system uh, there are 10 what are called student clubs from post-secondary campuses. So you, you have the like Carleton University, Young Liberals Club, that kind of thing. And each one of those clubs is worth 50 points. So half of a riding's uh, representation. Uh, then there are eight women's clubs. Uh, those are worth five points per club. So you add up the 124 ridings, the 10 student clubs, and the eight women's clubs, and that brings you to 142 total associations, uh, splitting 12,940 points between them, meaning that the winning candidate, who still has to get 50% plus one, must get at least 6,471 points to win. Now, you know, we always like to talk about magic numbers in this. The magic number to reach is... There's nothing particularly magic about the number 6,471. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. But in essence, you're right. That's, what that's where it's at now. 50% plus one of 12,940 points is 6,471. So that's the number to win when we provide coverage uh, on the day. That's this coming Saturday. Uh, that's the number we're going to be looking for. Now, just tell us how liberals actually voted over the weekend, not who they voted for. We obviously don't know that. But how did they actually mark their ballots? So the 129 associations uh, mostly voted in person. Uh, They, uh, again, were mostly uh, voting at one location within each riding. Uh, A few ridings were big enough to have uh, a second location. Uh, Then there were uh, seven remote locations where uh, liberals were allowed to vote by mail. A mix of both uh, in-person balloting and mail-in balloting. But again, this is all using the, the liberals' ranked ballot system. And all paper ballots, too. There's no phone no phone calls, no computers, no pin numbers like some other political parties have done. You had to go to a location. You had to mark an X on a ballot, and that's how it worked. The ballots, as we suggested, are now locked away at Liberal headquarters, and they will be taken in a rented U-Haul from that downtown Toronto location to the Metro Toronto Convention Center this Friday night. That's, of course, where the the, uh, leadership election results will be announced on the Saturday. And the ballots will be stored in a locked room with paid security overseeing the process. They are doing all this because the Liberals are using, as we suggested, paper ballots, not electronic voting. JMM, the party had a technical briefing last Friday. You and I were both in on that call. Uh, Why don't you share why the party is going with paper rather than technology? Uh, The short version is money. Um, The technology required to electronically scan all of these ballots and put them into a secure database and, uh, you know, that technology offers some benefits, right? People uh, could get these results much faster, um, but it costs a lot of money. Meanwhile, uh, the Liberal Party... uh, well, they have gotten through some of the worst of their financial troubles in the last recent years, and I believe they are currently debt-free. Um, they have more volunteers than they have ready cash at hand. So they're going to put people to work counting these ballots and uh, save their money for uh, another day. 
Now, this Saturday, December 2nd, they will start counting the ballots on that day. And as we indicated, there are more than 100,000 eligible liberal voters. There is often a big drop off, maybe as much as 50 percent, which will make counting easier. Uh, We will have the first ballot result. The party assures us by early afternoon. And I'm just checking my iPhone right now because I had an email into Carter Brownlee, who is the liberal uh, public relations person, media relations. And because uh, I wanted to know, how does he have an indication as to how many people voted? And he said they're not going to share any numbers about that. But he says, we are confident more Ontario liberals voted in this past weekend's leadership election votes than ever before. Now, that could still be half, you know, 50 percent drop off. And that would still be true. Uh, and this is also the first time the liberals are using one member, yes. one vote. So almost by definition. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um So, uh, obviously, short answer is we'll have to wait and see how many people of the 100,000-plus eligible voters actually voted. It won't be that number, to be sure. Uh, We have been told that after the vote is known, we will get a breakdown of the riding-by-riding votes. uh, But that will be at least a day, uh, perhaps more, after the leader has been announced. Uh, You and I are going to be providing gavel-to-gavel coverage Mm -hmm. of this uh, leadership convention starting at 12.15 p.m. Eastern on Saturday afternoon. And if everything goes according to Hoyle, we will have the first ballot results in the early afternoon. But... What if everything doesn't go according to Hoyle? Ah, and you know what? I'm not sure I've ever covered a leadership convention where everything went smoothly, right? Something always happens. And the question you just posed is something I asked at the technical briefing last week. What do you worry about? What do they worry about in terms of things that could upset everything that has been planned? And, you know, (laughs) you only have to go back to 2013 uh, when the Ontario uh, Liberal Party had a leadership convention at Maple Leaf Gardens. And believe it or not, there was a flood Before the last ballot, this was Kathleen Wynne against Sandra Pupatello, and it resulted in them having to move the voting stations to another location just before the final ballot. So that, of course, delayed things. They worry about things like that. What else do they worry about? Well, what if the results of one ballot are very, very, very close? They may have to do a recount. And I've seen that happen before as well, where the voting is so close, they have to do a recount. That would, of course, take extra time. What if tensions from the Middle East war present themselves at the convention center? You know, there have been large pro-Palestinian protests every Saturday for weeks in downtown Toronto. Could something like that spill over towards the convention? I mean, it's possible. Uh, Lots of potential unexpected things could happen. Organizers have to be very organized to make sure things unfold as smoothly as possible. Uh, We remind everybody they didn't at the Ontario PC Party convention in March of 2018. The counting got delayed and delayed and delayed. Eventually, uh, the party hadn't rented the hall for late enough. So when they brought down the gavel at the end of the convention, time had run out, but they weren't actually able to announce a winner. You and I both remember that. Much later that night, they had a press conference after everybody had gone home to say that Doug Ford had won. But again... With the delays and the delays, that was a problem last time out. Now, the Liberals have ensured us that they have the hall booked until midnight. That would make it a 12-hour long convention. I don't think it should take that long. It shouldn't take that long. Uh, Obviously, if a candidate wins 50% plus one of the available points on the first ballot, it's all over right away. But if that doesn't happen and there's a second ballot or maybe even a third ballot, take us through that process. What happens then? Right. So uh, you know, we'll say that uh, Bonnie Crombie's campaign have said that they believe that a, a first ballot win is a possibility for them. But uh, it is possible that they are wrong. That's the fun thing about politics is that 
sometimes people are confident and then they are wrong. Um, so this is a ranked ballot system. Uh, as we mentioned, these ballots are uh, hand counted and people will rank their choices from first to last, or at least they can. They are not uh, required to to rank all four uh, candidates. But if you voted for, let's say, uh, Ted Shu, and Ted Shu uh, comes in last on the first ballot, if you put a second choice down on your ballot, all of the ballots that were for Ted Shu in that riding or in that association will uh, then get recounted. And anybody who put a second choice, their votes will then be allocated to their second choice candidate. So if you had voted for Ted Shu and then decided that your second choice was Bonnie Crombie, your vote will then be counted towards uh, Bonnie Crombie. Um, one of the reasons why the liberals believe that it will be faster to get the second and third ballot results out than it is to get the first ballot out is because if if all goes according to plan, they only have to count the ballots of the people who have dropped off uh, in each subsequent ballot. So you don't have to count 100% of the votes in each subsequent counting. It's also possible if on the second ballot, let's say the third and fourth uh, contenders if neither of them has enough uh, have enough votes to uh, jump ahead of the second place contested, they might both get dropped from the uh, accounting. And then we would see basically only two ballots, right? The second ballot would be the final ballot. There would be only two contestants left on the ballot. And one of them would mathematically have to get the 50% plus one. Reminder, there are four candidates vying for support, and in alphabetical order, they are the Mayor of Mississauga, Bonnie Crombie, Member of Parliament, Nate Erskine-Smith, Member of Provincial Parliament, Ted Shu, and Member of Parliament, Yasser Nakfi. And Crombie's campaign, as she has insisted in the last couple of weeks, uh, they insist they're close to winning on the first ballot. I don't know if that's true or whether they're just trying to exhort their supporters to, uh, not to stay home. Uh, we'll find out Saturday, obviously. And a reminder, our live coverage on our website, tvo.org, begins at 12.15 Eastern Time, JMM and I hosting. We'll have interviews with prominent liberals, including former premiers Kathleen Wynne and Dalton McGuinty, throughout the afternoon, and we'll stay on until it's done. Now, while we're on the subject of this leadership election, let us remind people that this is the first time the liberals have used this system for choosing their leader. And it prompted this question from a listener named Ian, who writes, JMM, take us through it. I'm just going to say that I'm not entirely convinced that Steve didn't, in fact, write this email and is just using a pen name. I I, I promise you I did not write the email, but I'm so glad Ian did. Uh, Ian writes, so good to have the On Poly podcast back. I had a quick question about your last episode. You talked about the system the Liberals are using for the upcoming leadership convention, and Steve mentioned how he thinks the delegated conventions from before were way better. Wondering if you could explain more about how that system worked and what made it so much better. Thanks, Ian. Ian, I love you for sending this email. Here we go. Back in the good old days, parties had what they called delegated conventions. What does that mean? Well, let's go through it. Every riding would have a delegate selection process. Party members did not vote for the actual candidates as they do now. They voted for delegates who supported those candidates. And those delegates would ultimately go to the convention and they would choose the leader. And there were different classes of delegates. You could get, as we suggested, elected as a delegate. You'd say, I'm for candidate A, and if you like candidate A, vote for me and I'll go to the convention and vote for candidate A. There were 15 delegates per riding that got elected that way. But there were more. 
there were superdelegates as well. If you were a member of parliament or a member of provincial parliament, you were an automatic delegate and can vote. You didn't have to run for it. You were automatically a delegate. Or in some cases, if you were a nominated candidate from the previous election, but you didn't win, or in some cases, if you were the president of a riding association, you were an automatic delegate and you could vote. So after all the delegates were selected and the superdelegates registered, they would all, and it would usually add up to about 5,000 people, they would descend into some hockey arena or convention center, and the program was always like this. The candidates gave speeches on a Friday night, the voting would take place on Saturday, and the winner would hold a press conference with the media on Sunday. And the speeches on Friday night were important because undecided delegates had a chance to hear a last-minute pitch from all of the candidates Committed delegates could get a better sense of whom they should support on subsequent ballots if their candidate dropped out of the race for lack of support. So they'd have a first ballot. If no one got 50% plus one of the delegates, the lowest ranking candidate would be obliged to drop off and they'd have a second ballot and everybody would vote again. And all eyes would be on the candidate who dropped off to see where they might throw their support on the second ballot and presumably take as many delegates as possible of theirs to that candidate. So there was arm twisting in between ballots as the surviving candidates tried to convince those who were dropping off to support them. You had dramatic moments as candidates who were dropping off would leave the boxes in their arena with their supporters in tow and literally move across the convention floor into another candidate's box. And you could see it happening in real time. There was a dynamic of momentum created. I'm getting all excited describing this because I've seen it so many times. The dynamic created with that momentum in real time was something something to behold. But the most important principle was that the winner actually had the majority of the delegates on their side. The system that all the parties now use, this point system, means that the winner might not actually have the most votes. That's what happened in 2018 when Christine Elliott actually won more votes than Doug Ford and won more ridings than Doug Ford but Ford scored more points than Elliott, and therefore he became the PC party leader. I am and have always been a big fan of the delegated convention. It's more dramatic. It's more interesting. It's happening in real time, unlike a leadership election where the voting happened a week ago and on convention day, there's no dynamic that's possible. There's no momentum that's possible because it's all over and done with already. They're just basically gathering to count the votes and announce the winner. So that's why, Ian, I love the old-fashioned delegated conventions. Now John Michael's going to tell me why I'm wrong about all of that. <laughs> well, you have sung the system's praises. And in my heart of hearts, like, you know, I, I covered some of the, the what, what we can now say are some of the last delegated conventions likely that we're ever going to see in Canadian political history. And they are a ton of fun. I will grant you that. Um, but let's discuss some of the faults. And let's start with the obvious one that once members elect their delegates, their role was more or less over. All of the important decisions would be made by the delegates and the members would have to accept their judgment for better or worse. And you could get weird results in delegated contests too, right? In 2006, the federal liberals used a delegated convention. Uh, Stéphane Dion was only narrowly ahead of Gerard Kennedy, but Kennedy in fourth place withdrew, endorsed Dion in third, who ended up in first place on the next ballot and would end up winning. Uh, so in effect, a fourth place contestant ended up picking 
the leader and someone, it turned out, who struggled to maintain the support of his own party. Um, you know, I said last week that ideally the rules don't determine the winner. And this is kind of what I mean. In a, in a hotly contested race where the margins of victory are so narrow, the rules suddenly take on a ton of importance. And those rules should ideally be fair and clear to everyone. But you really can't escape the problem of the rules effectively picking the winner in a tight race when you would prefer the the members be able to do so. And here's where I come back and say, McGrath, I don't care about any of those arguments. <laughs> They're completely irrelevant. Uh, look, one of the problems with, with the way the system works right now, yes, it encourages the leadership campaigns to go out there and find new liberal members and sign them up and get them to vote in a leadership election. And in that way, you are, you know, hopefully broadening the base of your party and spreading the love. The reality is, they will have signed up 100,000 members for this leadership election. I'm guessing, I don't know this, but I, I suspect we'll find out on Saturday that at least half the people didn't vote. So how committed to, liberal, to the Liberal Party are they really? Well, not at all. So to me, if you're going out to take the trouble to get elected as a delegate, to go to a convention and vote, you are demonstrating some actual serious interest in the party, and therefore that interest should be rewarded. So that's why that's one of the reasons I like delegated conventions. The other thing is you pointed out that sometimes the fourth place candidate backs the third place candidate who then jumps over the first place candidate and you suggest that that's a problem. I don't think that's a problem. The reality is leadership candidates sometimes do but often can't bring their delegates with them. If you are a leader who's really got your team in tow, yes, you can bring a lot of your support to another candidate. And, and that's how it works. In 1996, I remember at Maple Leaf Gardens at 4.30 in the morning, Joe Cordiano, who was the third place candidate, was the kingmaker and made Dalton McGinty the leader of the liberals because he brought 85% of his support of his delegates with him to McGinty. But what if he couldn't? What if his delegates said, sorry, Joe, we can't go with you on this? That happens all the time. So uh, to me, this is not a failing of the delegate system. This is just another reason why we should love it even more. I have one more argument <laughs> that I, I don't know if it will resonate with you. I suspect it will resonate with at least some of our listeners. And that is that the entire idea of a delegated convention is a awful U.S. import that has been jury rigged into the Canadian parliamentary system, right? Canadian political parties, in it, when the Constitution was uh, uh, written in 1867, we adopted the British tradition that the elected caucus in Parliament picked the leader of the party. And it was only in the 20th century that Canadian political parties, I believe, if I remember correctly, starting with the Liberals and then eventually yeah, was, the others. Uh, William uh, Mackenzie King. Yeah. The first one. Uh, they, they adopted the U.S. idea of the delegated convention. Of course, the Americans have primaries and delegated conventions to pick things like presidential nominees. Uh, Canadian parties uh, adopted that system uh, basically because it helps, you know, uh, uh, build membership and get media attention. But it is fundamentally a kind of alien invasion of what I think of as the, the, the proper parliamentary system, which is that the caucus should pick the leader. Well, this will be the one time where I will say, well done, U.S. This is an importation <laughs> of an idea that I actually can get behind. Anyway, there we go. <laughs> Uh, once again, if you would like to ask about uh, any of the segments on the show, please email us at onpolitics at tvo.org. Did you see what happened in Mississauga last Friday? Ah, uh, did I ever. Now, nobody has won anything yet, but a reporter last week asked Premier Doug Ford, who was making an announcement about funding for the police in Mississauga, whether he was scared 
about Bonnie Crombie potentially becoming the leader of the Ontario Liberals. That's kind of, was that a joke or, or no? But anyways, you know, you say you're in Bonnie Crombie's neighborhood, I call it, uh, you know, PC neighborhood because we have every single seat in Peel Region, right up from Calden over to Brampton over to Mississauga. So anyways, I say bring it on. Uh, the Premier Ford seemed uh, peeved by the question. Uh, he correctly pointed out that uh, the progressive conservatives have every seat in Mississauga, I believe every seat in Peel Region. Yes. Uh, and so he's not spooked at all by Crombie. Uh, but one of Crombie's points that she has campaigned on is that she is uniquely capable of getting under Ford's skin and would therefore give the Liberals a better chance to improve their fortunes than any of the other candidates. This uh, may be another example of that. All right, on to your column, my column. Okay, it's time now for our regular feature, Your Column, My Column, in which JMM and I reminisce about columns that we wrote for TVO.org over the past week. JMM, what have you got up your sleeve? Uh, well, I'm going to discuss a little bit about uh, the MPP for Hamilton Centre, Sarah Jemma, uh, formerly a New Democrat, now sitting as an independent in the legislature. She has sued uh, the Speaker of the House, the Legislative Assembly, uh, and the Government of Ontario for the censure motion uh, that was passed a few weeks ago that uh, effectively denies her the right to speak in the legislature. And um, this is an interesting case to me because it raises the issue of parliamentary privilege. And we have talked about this before. And I I almost will never give up an opportunity to discuss uh, parliamentary privilege because I think it's a fascinating topic. And uh, basically, the issue here is um, the legislature, uh, like uh, all British heritage parliaments uh, has the right to uh, organize its own internal debates and uh, discipline members uh, without uh, those members having any kind of recourse to the courts. And so this would normally be a pretty open and shut case that actually Sarah Jamma doesn't really um, have any uh, legal uh, avenue to uh, uh, seek redress. The thing is in the Canadian context that it's not super clear uh, in what cases the Charter of Rights and Freedoms uh, interacts with parliamentary privilege. Uh, there have been some cases where the Supreme Court has basically said, no, the Charter uh, cannot be used to uh, defeat parliamentary privilege. And in other cases, some judges have sort of said, uh, actually, in some cases, we might want to discuss that, just not right now. So, um, you know, effectively, uh, one of the arguments that Sarah Jama is making uh, in court is that, uh, you know, uh, whatever one uh, thinks about her statements about Israel and Gaza, uh, nobody has alleged that there is any kind of uh, criminal speech, no kind of uh, hate speech. And she hasn't even broken the rules as they are laid out of speaking uh, in the legislature because her remarks were not in the legislature. And so there's a question here of, does the legislature have the power to punish an MPP for constitutionally protected speech that did not happen inside the legislature? Hmm. I have no idea how the courts will uh, answer this one. I suspect that she has a very high bar to clear and that um, it, it would be it would be highly unusual for the courts to wade in on this matter. Um, but uh, I'm going to be paying very close attention to this case because I think it's a fascinating issue. Having said that, we hasten to add you've already established you're not an engineer or a constitutional lawyer, but you're going to go out on a limb and make that prediction anyway. Yeah, I mean, good enough for podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> good enough. Well, this past week, I wrote a piece about uh, women and philanthropy, given that today is Giving Tuesday, when people are asked to dig deep into their wallets and contribute something to charity. There's a new bank report out by the TD Bank, and it looks at women in philanthropy over the last decade. Apparently, 10 years ago, women contributed on an annual basis about a billion and a half to charity. 
This year, it's more like $4.5 billion. And by the end of the decade, by 2030, they are anticipating that women will contribute $9.5 billion annually to philanthropy. And the clear conclusion of this report is that if women stop being philanthropic with both their money and their time, the entire charitable sector would collapse. So this is a column about the importance of giving and in particular, the spotlight on the influence of women who give to charity. And you can see John Michaels and my columns on our website, tvo.org. And that is the On Poly podcast for this Tuesday, November 28th, 2023. Make sure to follow our show on Apple Podcasts so that you get notified each time a new episode is available. And if you already follow our show, help a friend follow the show, too. Any feedback you have, we're happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. And we apologize for going a little long this week, but McGrath got me. He got under my skin on this delegated convention business, so I went on a bit long. Apologies. We're having a bit of fun. Yeah. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Katie O'Connor. Production support from Carla Lucetta and Jonathan Hallowell. Remember to join us at TVO.org on Saturday from 12.15 p.m. on for the Ontario Liberal Leadership Election. And then we'll have full details on next week's On Poly podcast. So until Saturday and then again next Tuesday, bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone.